welcome to Historical Frictions, a historical fiction podcast where we delve into the nitty gritty of history, fiction and everything in between. I'm Hilary and I'm joined as always by my co-hosts Tess and Lachlan. Hello. Hello. Today we are jumping straight into our new format and looking at historical, in quotations, <laughs> historical <laughs> fictions. But first, how are we all? <laughs> Good. <laughs> yeah. I'm just tired at the moment. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I think we're all tired. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's been busy. It's been, I don't know about Adelaide, but the weather just rapidly changed in Sydney and it just... It Sydney rained. just decided to flood for a week. It just rained yeah. for six days straight. Yeah, so that was pretty intense. <laughs> I obviously chose to go to Sydney for four days in the middle of that six days. It was great. <laughs> oh. I, I, I mean, went to Renmark, which had lovely weather. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Wow, nice for some. Yeah. <laughs> I say that I did enjoy sending photos out the window of the plane when I landed back in Adelaide to my mum being like, look at our blue skies. <laughs> so It was like 30-something <laughs> degrees one day that it was like 16 and raining nonstop here, which it's was very insane. funny. But, yeah. We are thinking of the people, obviously, in northern New South Wales mm. who are quite currently dealing really with terrible. quite heavy floods. Yeah, so hopefully that will yeah. calm down now that we've actually got some sunshine and things can start drying out. So let's get to it. So as we mentioned in our previous episode, uh, this year we are looking at so themes more so than individual books um, with each of us reading something different so we can come together and have a bit of a discussion. Yes, so to kick that off, this month our theme is historical, historical fictions. And what we mean by that is books that were written, in this case, uh, before 1900, um, that are kind of considered the first novels of the genre um, that we know as now historical fiction. And I think for me, this is probably going to be the most interesting part of our discussion is thinking about what historical fiction actually is, what kind of counts as historical fiction and how we define that. I'm excited to look at these early examples to do that. Yeah, so in terms of setting or characters, our novels don't have a lot of crossover, but they are closely linked because of their place within the genre's foundation um, and how they help define what aspects of historical fiction are going to be in the future, which we'll delve into a little later. But first, we'll outline a little bit of what we read and their background. Uh, what were you reading this month, Hilary? Yeah, so I read Ivanhoe by Walter Scott, which was released in 1820. So this is the 10th of what was considered Scott's Waverley series, which includes other novels like Rob Roy, which some people might be familiar with because there was an adaptation of it, Liam Neeson. And most of his novels are set in Scottish history. So this was a bit of a deviation in terms of it because it's set in England specifically. Also, to most scholars of the genre, Walter Scott is sort of considered the father of modern historical fiction genre, which we all kind of know isn't true. But for people, you know, men in universities sitting there defining what historical fiction is. Walter Scott's got sort of up there in terms of like revolutionising the genre. And of course, we will probably talk about this, but there were women obviously writing in a historical fiction genre beforehand, particularly in the Gothic genre. A lot, a lot of those can be considered historical fiction as well. But in general, I chose this novel as it's often referenced in the study of 19th century medievalism, which listeners will know both Tess and I study. It's also set during the 12th century and is extremely Chaucerian, well, Chaucerian 
in its structure and the way that it's written. So it kind of brought up some interesting ideas about how Scott approaches this sort of novel for me. What about you, Tess? What did you read? I read Castle Rackrent by Maria Edgeworth, which was published in 1800, so going back a little bit. Um, it didn't actually identify her as the author at the time. And so it's a short novel. It's, again, it has been called by some the first historical novel, which, again, also is still a bit questionable. But it nevertheless, it kind of holds this very important position in the genre, in actually a bunch of different genres and in different ways. But for historical fiction, it's kind of one of them. It's quite a mashup of different things, I guess. I wanted to read something by a female author um, and I was interested in the kind of class commentary that this offers. And I think there's a kind of quite a narrow-minded perspective about early women's writing that it's all, you know, romance or it's about gender politics and that's what it's kind of focused on. So uh, this kind of work to me is a perfect example of the fact that is not true uh, and that women were writing all these other amazing things as well. Not that romance isn't fantastic, but to kind of break away from some of those stereotypes people have about earlier novels, this kind of of image of the Jane Austen novel which also Jane Austen's novels weren't just about women and gender but anyway that you know it, it kind of has a very different perspective so it's set over time through four different masters of this estate rack rent it's very deliberately prior to 1782 so that's what it sort of says on the title page uh, which is only you know 20 years before it came out so I'll talk a little bit later about why it is historical and the purpose of kind of the idea of the kind of historicity of it and what that kind of serves for the novel. Um, but yes, if I think it kind of challenges some of those ideas about the genre. It's not quite as easy to say it is historical the same way that Scott writing back in the 12th century is going to be. Um, yes, so theoretically as well, her writing actually inspired Walter Scott's Waverley series. So she, in his postscript for the first one in, in 1814, says, um, like, that uh, he, he has a debt to Edgeworth's admirable Irish portraits. Um, so I think that's interesting. So we could think about that relationship today. Um, so, and then Lucky, what did you read? Uh, so I read a novel called Hope Leslie by Catherine Maria Sedgwick, which was published in 1827. Uh, so Catherine Maria Sedgwick was a very popular writer in the early 19th century, obviously a female author, and she... Uh, wrote this novel, which is in a similar vein to like The Last of the Mohicans by James Fenimore Cooper, which is probably the more um, canonical kind of example of this style of writing in that period now. Um, and Catherine Maria Sedgwick's works were like a little lost for a while, not lost, but not really considered those men in universities. Again, they weren't really paid much attention to. Um, there's been a bit of a resurgence in interest in like the late 20th century where she's been rediscovered to an extent. But it's a really interesting novel because she has an interesting personal perspective. Being a woman, she also converted from congregationalism to Unitarianism, which affects her perspective in this book, which is focused on the Puritans in early New England in the middle of the 17th century. And she was also never married throughout her life, which comes into play in a great deal in this novel, which I'll talk about when we talk about it in more detail. So yeah, that's what I read. And it's, yeah, a very interesting novel that uh, takes quite a different tack to something like Last of the Mohicans, particularly um, in its depictions of Native Americans, um, which is very interesting. And I'll talk about more later. Yeah, really interesting. Yeah. I'm pretty sure Edgeworth also never married. Mm. Right on, sisters. <laughs> <laughs> 
So obviously going through the whole plot of these three different novels will take a little bit too long here, but is there anything that each of us kind of want to mention about the setting of the novels um, and if you got a sense of kind of why your author picked the time period that they picked. Hilary, do you want to go first? Yeah, yeah I'll go first. <laughs> I'll talk a little bit more about the sort of like why he picked the medieval period a bit later. But in general, I think the thing to mention about this one is it's very, from what we could consider now, it's very sort of like a crusades novel, I think, and that definitely informs how the structure of the story plays out and the different interactions he has with characters and stuff and I think it's a hard one to talk about in terms of like actual plot and things like that going on because not a lot happens even though I'm about halfway through and I'll be honest I didn't finish it not a lot has happened there are some interesting dynamics in terms of society structure as well which I might talk a little bit about later in terms of um, classification of classes and you know this sort of interesting time period in England with it the Anglo-Saxons and the Normans and there's and uh like interaction between the two of those groups but yeah in general I think it's important to mention here that like it feels very different in terms of medieval setting for a 19th early 19th century text because I'm not I'm not familiar with much of any sort of like other historical novels around this period that are set within the medieval period. I don't know if anyone else has got differing opinions on that. Tess, are you familiar if there's like any other like medievalism texts from that period? I know there's a lot of poetry, but... Yeah, that's what I was just going to say. I think not so much in the form of a novel. There's a lot of art, yeah. there's a lot of poetry and kind of writing, but not... Yeah, that's why, that's why Scott is kind of seen as this like the father, right, of the historical novel because he's the only one who really did this at that point. Yeah, which is quite interesting. Yeah, I'm sorry to put you on the spot there. No, that's fine. I, I didn't think to look that up myself. Um, that's why I guess the novel itself is a little bit unique. I mean, today, obviously, medieval period is such an oversaturated time period in the, like, fictional market. So it's very interesting to note that it it's very individual and that um aspect but yeah I don't know I'll talk a little bit I'll get more in depth about it in terms of its historicity a little bit later but yeah I think that's just kind of it is interesting that I um Ivanhoe is oh the other thing I'll mention actually now is that Ivanhoe is also probably his least popular out of the Waverly series as well so like everyone kind of knows of this one now but considering the rest of the series that was much more popular than Ivanhoe at the time so I think picking this one to look at it now is interesting given the context that we have this sort of relationship with the medieval period through like media and stuff but Walter Scott obviously decided to go out on a bit of a limb with this one so um, especially compared to his other works but yeah that's what about you, Lockie? Where do you have any sort of things you want to mention about it? Yeah, so because this is being written in 1827, it's like quite early um, in the history of the United States as the United States. And it's really part of this project in the beginning of the 19th century to build uh, a distinct American literature, because in colonial America, there was a sense that America is like a, a backwater and, um, you know, all the centre of culture is, you know, London or places in England. Um, and in the 19th century, there's a real push that, like, no, we're Americans, we're independent from Britain now, we should be building our own literature. Um, mm -hmm. And you also get things like um, 
so a year after Hope Leslie's published is the publication of the first Webster's Dictionary, which is like standardizing American English as something distinct from British English. Um, so Sedgwick's work fits into that. Um, and because of that, a lot of the kind of historical fiction is focused on um, foundational narratives of America, which is why she looks back here to the Puritans and to early New England. Um, and so, yeah, she picks that because um, she's trying to build this sense of national identity, but also trying to critique it a bit. Um, and I'll get into that more when we talk about the historicity, but she looks at the Puritans and how they've been depicted. And she's actually quite critical of um, how some of their deeds have been glossed over um, or put in a more positive light than what she sees them in. Um, but yeah, what about you, Tess? Yes, so Castle Rackrent. It comes at a very political time for Ireland and the UK. So the 1790s was a hectic setting for, I mean, this is set earlier, but like in terms of the time that she was writing and why she would pick that period. So um, there were a whole bunch of constitutional changes in Ireland um, in 1782, which is why that year is kind of highlighted, uh, which were about being released from the Crown of England, from the control of the Crown of England. And then in 1800, the Acts of Union kind of undid all of that. Um, and they were kind of brought together as the United Kingdom. And so in the gap between those, those years, there was this hugely kind of turbulent political period of, of rebellion. Um, in 1798, there was an actual, the actual kind of uprising um, by the United Irishmen to try and form a Republic of Ireland. Um, and this kind of uh, more rural, I think, Irish uh, group called the Defenders, which were doing a similar thing, and there was kind of escalating violence during this period. So that's when she's writing. Um, so to publish a, a kind of historical novel at that time was really the only way I think that you could kind of offer a critique of some of the things that she does um, talk about, because if you were setting it during that period, it would have a very different kind of meaning. So by saying it's before 1782 and making it this sort of historical time period, she's able to kind of write about it. It makes it a commentary about the past as opposed to about the present, even though a lot of these issues, I mean, the title of it, right, rack renting, um, which is about inflating rent and having these hugely escalating rent prices on, um, on these properties for the tenants. Um, and so one of those practices that's obviously very exploitative from the landowning class. And so that's that's still a huge issue at the time, right? But by making it seem like this, this commentary is about things in the past, she's able to kind of talk about um, those issues because, again, yeah, there's this incredibly kind of turbulent history in the, in the period that she's actually writing, which I think, yeah, obviously kind of comes through in the things that she's writing about. Um, and I, I can talk about more of this stuff later as well. Um, and I think it's really interesting that she is able to kind of paint this very satirical picture. And it's actually the class that she's from. So it's the Protestant kind of Anglo-Irish class. And she's from, um, her main source for writing it is the, the it's called the Black Book of Edgeworth, Edgeworth's Town, which is her own family's kind of history accounts of their estate. Um, and so it gives it this sort of historical guise for her to be able to critique what is effectively her own class. Um, and she sort of talks about in the prologue. Um, so there's the actual book is only like about 90 pages um, and it's a kind of novella. Um, so there's the, the main chunk of it, which is narrated by this steward of the property 
um, that she's has all invented, um, but the steward. And then um, she added, and, and whether she added this or whether it was just the editor's perspective who wanted to add this as well, um, an introduction, a pre preface um, and a glossary and footnotes throughout. And so that is from the perspective of an English narrator. Um, which is supposed to make the book kind of more palatable because by the point that it's coming out, um, the uh, acts of union are happening and the rebellion has kind of failed um, in 1798. And so there's this really like difficult moment to be publishing this kind of critique of the Anglo-Irish glass, um, landowning glass. And so it kind of makes it even more historical. Like that's what really adds this sort of... Um, very like antiquarian kind of story and looking back on the past narration overhead to what's written. So the footnotes give like extra details to the story. They're like for supposed to be kind of translating it for an English audience. Um, but that's what really kind of makes it like this type of awful Irish behavior is only in the past. So don't worry, the union is still a good thing. Um, because <laughs> yeah. Oh, Wow. Sorry, Lucky and I just did a very like exaggerated wink. I just realized that would be a very strange sound for an audio uh, podcast. Anyway, um, that was kind of the story that's trying to be sold, right? Is that this, um, that it's not a bad thing to incorporate these people into the union because it's, it's historical. It's, it's in the past. It's, that's not what we're like anymore. Um, yeah. And then it's all kind of the, the introduction to it in particular, which is only a couple of pages, but it's very like, kind of the, the quotes say things, you know, that this was some years ago and there these are tales of other times. And um, yeah, this sense that they're, they're secret memories and anecdotes and things that it's, it really makes it this kind of private recollection on a, a past time and then adds that extra layer of historical voice to it as well. So um, I think the choice of setting it before 1782 is this very political move in the context of when she's writing to be able to offer these critiques um, in a, a historical way, if that kind of makes sense, in terms of why she picked to do it in that way. That's really fascinating. Um, yeah. So much more interesting context than what we've, <laughs> we were both <laughs> talking about. <laughs> do you know, do you get a sense like, was it successful? that people like did people find it unpalatable or did they um i don't know there's not a lot of yeah. I, think. I mean it was like it I, my understanding is it was reasonably kind of well not well received but like widely read she actually is an author of children's fiction mostly um she writes a couple of novels but this is sort of out of the style of what she kind of normally wrote it's quite kind of different um, and this is the only, this is the first thing she published that didn't have her father editing it and changing it quite a lot. Um, yeah, in, in theory, I think mm. it, it was quite enjoyed, especially by the English audience. I don't know its effect on people's opinion about the Acts of Union though. Mm. <laughs> like that's not really recorded, <laughs> but it was yeah. kind of enjoyed as this like satirical critique of the Irish class um so I, yeah I, I don't actually know that's just kind of the context of when it was coming out that I know mm. about but I don't know if there's much record of um of what people then thought about it immediately kind of following and its effect on that political climate after yeah. the acts of union mm. cool. I don't know <laughs> I didn't find anything about that that's a really that's good right. question <laughs> I wish I did 
Well, um, seeing as these novels are kind of set in different periods, I wondered how you both felt it kind of engaged with that history that it's trying to represent. Um, I think we've touched a little bit on it uh, in a response, but um, if you wanted to go a little bit more depth about how authors try to create a sense of historicity. Lockie, do you want to go first? So it's really interesting. So she talks, there's a little... um, Preface, that's the word I'm looking for. (laughs) I was like, what's the thing before the novel? (laughs) There's a little preface in which she, uh, uh, Sedgwick, talks about, like, her historical design and how she's, yeah, how she's done research and she says that real characters and real events are, however, alluded to. Um, And this course, if not strictly necessary, was found very convenient in the execution of the author's design, which was to illustrate not the history but the character of the times. So she's talking about mm. like um, how she's taking these real people and kind of basing it on a real situation, uh, but to, yeah, not like strictly adhering, which I thought was really interesting and quite a kind of like modern understanding of what people yeah. do with historical fiction. Mm. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Um, but part of that as well is she's really, in a way, engaging with historiography and the historiography of particularly the uh, Pequot War, which is around when this novel was set. Um, And so the Pequot War was a war between uh, early white settlers um, in Massachusetts and New England, that area, against the Pequot tribe, um, who were basically decimated by it. Um, it Yeah, ended up with the destruction of a lot of their culture. Um, And that's the immediate like framing of this story. It follows the Fletcher family um, in New England after the events of the Pequot War and their interactions with um, uh, three of the remaining Pequots, which are Mononoto, who was one of the chiefs, um, and his two children, uh, his daughter, Magawiska, uh, and his son, Waniko. Um, and through those characters, Sedgwick uh, actually gives a really strong critique of the way the history of the Pequot War has been written. And the particular example of that is when she has Magawiska recount what's known as the Mystic Massacre, um, which was a massacre in one of their settlements where the English surrounded uh, this village, um, which they didn't have the numbers to attack it, so they surrounded it, sent a few people in to start a fire within it, and then killed the people as they were fleeing, um, which is obviously very, very horrible. Um, and there's a key moment in Hope Leslie where Magawiska recounts having been uh, involved in this massacre uh, to Everill, who is one of the, um, the Fletcher family. He's the, the eldest son. Um, and his response is basically like working out that he'd been lied to about what happened in that and that now from Magawiska, who is a victim of this, he's hearing the truth, um, which casts the English obviously in this terrible light. So this is what Cedric writes about his response to that, um, that he'd heard before. Uh, to, to, Everett had heard them detailed with the interest and particularity that belongs to recent adventures, but he had heard them in the language of the enemies and conquerors of the Pequods, and from Magawiska's lips they took a new form and hue. Uh, she seemed to him to embody nature's best gifts and her feelings uh, to be the inspiration of heaven. It gets very exaggerated. <laughs> but he says, yeah, this new version of an old story reminded him of the man and the lion and the fable, but here it was not merely changing sculptures to give the advantage to one or the other of the artist's subjects, but it was putting the chisel in the hands of truth. 
So it's Ooh, a very yeah. I love that. Putting the chisel yeah. in the hands of truth. Yeah, so it's very much not a like, oh well, I'm just hearing this now from their perspective, like, oh, this is what really happened and I've not been told it. So it's really interesting. Um, and quite like a strong condemnation of the way that that history has been told. I don't want to go too far because it's also very much a product of its times and the way it treats Native Americans. Um, okay. There's a lot of that kind of uh, settler colonial narrative of like them as a disappearing people, um, you know, which kind of justifies the expansion that was going on in the time that she's writing. But it does... Um, yeah, provide this kind of interesting counterpoint and actually attack the historiography, which I thought was really interesting and like quite compelling. Mm. Do you know in in the context of when she's writing, like mm. were other people criticizing that? Does she seem to be kind of do do you have a sense of where she kind of got that critique from? Yeah, yeah. so it would have been a like. I don't know in much detail, there would have been definitely some opposition to it at the time um, and consideration certainly growing. Um, and this is a point where it becomes increasingly visible because it's around the time of like uh, the Trail of Tears, um, which I think is a few years later. Yeah, between the 1830s and 1850. So it happens a little after she writes, um, but there definitely is like, these are big events and you have the Cherokee people like bringing their, um, what's been done to them to court and things like mm -hmm. that. So it is becoming like an issue that people are talking about, but she's definitely ahead of like, I think a lot of her sort of fellow people and um, compared to Last of the Mohicans, for example, which I haven't actually read, mm -hmm. but apparently takes a much more kind of traditional view of Native Americans. I have another question for you, um, mm. just based off the top of your top of your head knowledge. Um, what has been written in the history, the histories of the US at this stage as well? Because obviously she's like working with, if she's working with source material and stuff to sort of formulate her opinion, is there anything that like she would have been worked like based off there? Like, sorry, that was phrased really badly, but you know what I mean? Like, yeah. A what lot is of happening what in the historical story of the US at this stage? I mean, you said that they'd sort of like just like off the revolution, they're kind of trying to formulate a national narrative. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just really interested to know what, if she like, yeah, if there's something that she's sort of reacting to or in a terms lot of, of what history. She, yeah. A lot of what she talks about are kind of primary sources. I don't know what's really, really been written in the way of like secondary histories at this point. Um, but things like uh, she often refers to John Winthrop, um, who was the first governor of Massachusetts and who's mm -hmm. a character in this book, um, to his journals. Um, they're like one of the major sources um, for what she's writing. And so a lot of it is that kind of stuff, not necessarily narrative histories, but these historical documents like the journals of John Winthrop that would have been republished and things like that. Yeah, um, that's really that interesting. That people have read, yeah. It's, it's almost like she's sort of, a precursor to the way that historical novelists talk about their work now um, because a lot of, I don't know if I've talked about this before on the podcast, but a lot of the way that way in which historical novelists talk about their work at the moment is that they are referring to the source material. They're creating the story out of the source material rather than like, you know, using secondary sources as we sort of do sometimes in, like we sort of do a combination and in nonfiction mm. history. Um yeah, and that, there's a sort of emphasis on, like, I'm in the archive, I'm doing the, like, the grunt work, essentially, um, 
that's really fascinating that someone sort of in the 19th century is using that sort of term, almost that terminology, like I'm yeah. going back to basics. I'm taking away all that other stuff and looking at like this source material. Um, yeah. That's From what really you mentioned, Lockie, in the mm. postscript as well, similar, there's similar things that echo what we're familiar with. I can't remember what it was you said a minute ago, but. Yeah. The, the preface. Oh, was it? Then, Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Where she's talking about the character of the times rather than like yeah, historical yeah. events. Yeah. Yeah. I've something I talk about in my thesis is the way that historical fiction authors employ the afterword or the historical mm. note. And when you were talking about that, I was like, oh my yeah, God, like it, this is You should exactly, check it out. Yeah. <laughs> I think I might have to because like that is exactly what is being done in historical fiction now is that, you know, someone's gone through and read this entire book and at the end some like the author is saying I've changed some of these like depending on what they want to tell the reader obviously but they you know they sometimes lay out their sources like a bibliography or they'll you know write a note to say I have changed xyz other, everything mm-hmm. else is pretty much the same like it's mm-hmm. just that's really fascinating that this sort of like reporting of what the novel contains has a history itself so I think I might have to look at that uh, yeah, it's I a think- really it's a really interesting prep. Like it's very short, but yeah, yeah it, just the way she talks about it. Yeah, because she says, yeah, those who have not paid much attention to the history or character of these early sediments uh, will be surprised to find how clear, copious, and authentic are the accounts which our ancestors left behind them. So she's very much appealing to like yeah, primary source material there. That's um, really and then she finishes off by going like. This isn't a substitute for real history, but if you're interested, you should go chase down these sources. <laughs> like, doesn't list the sources, but um, yeah. That's so cool. Yeah, I think the preface in in Rack Rent as well is really different, but interesting in a similar way because a lot of what it's doing, right? So, as I say, it's the kind of section that's really called like propaganda for the Acts of Union, and it's very deliberately like this is history. Um, and it's also, it writes, it's not, it's not like an author's note about it as though this is a book. Like it writes about, you know, he was an illiterate old steward, blah, blah, blah. Like it talks about him like he's a real person, but like the way that the first two pages of it in particular talk about history, like there's a bit that's like, um, uh, the heroes of history are so decked out by the fine fancy of the professed historian they talk in such measured prose and act from such sublime or such diabolical motives that few have sufficient taste, wickedness or heroism to sympathise in their fate, blah, blah, blah. But, like, it's got this sense of, like, or besides there is much uncertainty even in the best authenticated ancient and or modern histories and that love of truth, which in some minds is innate and immutable, necessarily leads to a love of secret memories and private anecdotes. Like, there's this sense of this difference between history historians and the way that historians might write about history and then this different access you can get through this kind of story and again technically this is saying it's biography right so it's sort of like the bio value of biography taste of the biographer as though this is a real story but in the same sense mm-hmm. it's still making this distinction between like writing stories about the real people of the past and what this kind of story can do as a kind of opposition to what historians proper are able to do yeah which I think is interesting even though it's supposed mm. to be fiction as well but like yeah that might be something you want to look at Hillary as well yeah um, for sure yeah like I said really- to you uh the one of the books that I'm currently reading for my thesis the um Castle Rack Rank came up and I was like if I wasn't doing this podcast I wouldn't have known what that book was so mm. yeah and 
she she's talking more specifically about the context of women's writing and stuff like that but yeah um I definitely think I might have to come back to these sex and have a look at the <laughs> yeah great yeah. more work <laughs> more work for you yeah <laughs> it's really it's I think it's really cool to think about that way that these and that was the point of this week this podcast right this episode that thinking about how these traditions have continued and how this yeah. genre has these kind of conventions even back to these books that a few hundred years ago you know um yeah, I think then also in answer to your question, because I got us, we got us distracted, um, but about that kind of, um, uh, what were we talking about? The How they create a sense of historicity. Yeah. Um, for I'm reference, sorry that word I today. It's <laughs> um, a hard one. <laughs> and like I mentioned before, right, that it's like supposed to be this brilliant original text in many genres. Um, and the introduction to the copy that I'm reading, which is the, was the Oxford Words classic one, classics one um says Casa Rackrent has gathered a dazzling array of first the first regional novel the first socio-historical novel the first Irish novel the first big house novel the first saga novel and it kind of goes through this like list and then everything else I've read as well has this very like long list of things that it's supposed to be the kind of first original one of of these kind of sub-genres um and one of the things that it talks about is that people have mentioned is the way that it does this like unreliable observer of the, the story, this kind of unreliable narrator, which is also supposed to be a first in the genre. Of, I don't know if that's a genre in itself. Um, but yeah, I think the way that it creates its historicity, apart from the, um, the preface and the um, kind of additional English voice that's supposed to add this other perspective, but in the original like text itself, is it's all about this kind of character and this perspective. It's written, it's actually kind of hard to read, but it's written very, um, it's a very like almost kind of, stream of consciousness like retelling of this story and it's very kind of very kind of colloquial language around how he kind of describes um the story of the families um and he is supposed to be this lower class it's based on um her steward his name was john La- john langland who was this the steward of their family at their estate and like at some point i don't know where this comes from but in the introduction um which is written by i should say uh catherine kirkpatrick i think is a historian um but yeah says she like the edgeworth had said she can imitate his tone so well because she's had like practice of imitating him so i'm not 100 sure exactly what that means kind of sounds like she used to mock him and like can copy his voice but she is again she is a like the upper kind of Anglo-Irish Protestant class and the narrator of her story is this, is a Irish, a Catholic Irish um, steward to much kind of lower class in that sense than the people that the story is actually about and her own class and the perspective she's writing from. Um, but yeah, the, the whole way that it kind of creates this sense of this historical account is through this character of the steward and through this perspective. So he's very like um, kind of adoring of them. He talks about like my lady, even when he is then talking about like their absolute mismanagement of the estate um, and actions that you're obviously meant to think aren't okay, but it kind of conveys it through this perspective so that it becomes this kind of caricature of him, but more of the people he's talking about. Um, kind of mostly feel sympathy for the narrator in a sense. Um, but like one sort of specific example, there's a section where it's talking about the third, um, owner the third kind of lord um sir kit who like locks his wife away for many years um and the section from thaddy who's the he's called honest thaddy that's his nickname um <laughs> deliberate uh 
this uh, the kind of account from him is like, oh, and we'd always have dinner parties and everyone would always toast her and ask if she wants some food. And the answer would be that she's um, perfectly satisfied. And like the way it describes it from his perspective is that it's kind of fine, but then it has almost a full page footnote from this later English narrator idea, which is like, yeah, she was locked up for like over 20 years and it was really bad. And eventually she kind of escaped. Like, obviously it's kind of this very clear, like, yeah, that was bad. Uh, mm. Not Fatty's fault that he didn't know what was going on, but like in retrospect, um, you know, and so it kind of adds this, like the whole sense of history comes from him being a first person kind of narrator who experienced these stories. And then from this like historian kind of antiquated um, antiquarian, sorry, perspective, like reflecting on what he's saying, which makes his um, kind of regional local perspective seem much more authentic in a mm. way to this kind of historical period that he's talking about. Like it feels like, oh yeah, this is like his story of what happened. So even though she's writing, she technically experienced it not from that perspective at all, but she's used that perspective to kind of create like an insight um, and to criticize like those the people that obviously from the group that she's from again I think it's really interesting that she takes this angle mm. into it um, yeah does that I think it's the voice of those two kind of competing characters and like the English the addition of that kind of English um, narrator in the footnotes in particular because you read them like as you're going just kind of emphasizes what the kind of voice of Thaddy throughout um, like it doesn't kind of take away it kind of feels like it makes him seem more genuine and more kind of authentic by yeah. adding corrections, which is kind of strange, but I think that's how it creates that. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, no, it does. Mm. Because it's like that second narrative voice is kind of contextualising the first mm. one as like a product of its time, even though it's like 20 years ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And she started so, yeah. writing it less than that as well. She started writing like eight years after. the Like she started writing around... Um, they think like the early 1790s so like yeah <laughs> not very long at all mm. also something I found like interesting in Hope Leslie as well is that there are, are more like very explicit places where they're saying this is true guys <laughs> like things like this actually <laughs> happened um yeah like there's a few moments where she really like hits that home um which I thought was interesting especially when something like very gruesome or something happens which mm. it does at the beginning um she's like we hope our readers will not think we have wantonly sported with their feelings by drawing a picture of calamity that exists only in the fictitious tale um and then goes on to say like no these events happened in real life <laughs> it's yeah really mm. interesting mm. well i find that like hey. sorry no that's okay you go no, I was going to say what I found, uh, and it might be completely different from a 19th century reader, um, mm. was the whole thing was very formula formulaic for me. Um, so Graham Tullock in the intro to my Penguin edition said that many contemporary readers later shared enthusiasm, but increasingly associated it with a view of the novel, with a view of the novel as a great romantic tale, a wonderful story for boys but full of historical inaccuracies and improbabilities and lacking substantial ideas, <laughs> which I was like, oh, okay. Burn. That kind of resonated with me as I like, after I read that, cause I tend to skip the introductions beforehand. Cause I don't want any like 
I don't know. I don't know if you guys have found that like a lot of classics introductions kind of assume that you've read the book before. Um, yeah. And I don't want to spoil myself or anything. So yeah, I read it, read it the introduction yesterday to kind of get any sort of vibe from him. And yeah, I, f- I feel like I haven't read any of what Scott wrote in his um, Scottish history. So I don't quite know what they're like. And I get the sense that they're mostly set more towards the, uh, 16th and 17th century rather than the medieval period so and of course he is Scottish so he probably is able to tap into something a little bit different there but um, it was just very repetitive and overall lacking a lot of depth so it felt to me uh, and Tess you've read some of Ivanhoe haven't you uh, yeah well you did better than me Um <laughs> Scott went to a library and kind of read through a lot of medieval poetry to kind of get the sense of the rhythm and the mode of storytelling. And I think he also probably read a lot of Shakespeare as well. Like there's a lot of like the employment of language is very similar to Shakespeare's. So, for instance, he uses the word rude a lot. So like the floor was rude, the, like the way that, that, that Shakespearean language uses it, um, but there was one section that I was listening to and the word rude, I swear, was used 20 times in like a minute and I was just like, I'm done. Like, <laughs> I'm so done with this. Um, the part that I also got stuck on, uh, for instance, was halfway through the tournament section. So the middle of the, middle of the mm-hmm. as we'd call an anime, the tournament arc, <laughs> The, there's the tournament arc in the middle of this of the story which leads to Ivanhoe being injured which leads to the next part of the story happening um but it there should be lots of drama but like keeping with the style he kind of just lists what's happening on like in the joust and who's been hit who's been successful and then a little bit of drama happens with some characters and then oh, it's the next day and that's just going to repeat what happened. Um, so I feel like that sort of section is a good in- good introduction to like how it works because it's more to function for the reader, uh, giving them an insight into how a medieval jazz would have played out rather than this is what's happening to these characters. Does that make sense? So I mentioned... Chaucer before as well like so very Chaucerian and I think I meant that in the kind of the way that it's written so that especially the audiobooks that I listen to um seem to take the tone of like starting the sentence very high pitched and then we're going down here and talking like this and like every sentence was read <laughs> like that and I think that mm. gives you an indication of how you do it and if you were to read Chaucer you're probably gonna it's designed to be spoken right so you're gonna start by going you know on this day, this man was on a horse and down he went the hill, you know, that kind of thing. And so that is how it came across as he was reading this. And I know that that was the narrator's choice, but like even picking up the book and reading it, you're kind of like, okay, this is exactly how it comes across that sort of very Chaucerian performative. I mean, I would probably categorize it as pastiche now because it's, obviously an attempt to replicate medieval Mm. poetry Um, and something that I found out as well is that Scott had written poetry in the medieval form before this so I think that kind of explains that style of the novel 
um, and how that kind of conveyed, I think, the selling of the novel as well for that sort of, like, audience. But also it's quite dense and I think that that's with with facts in quotations because obviously contemporaries were saying it's factually inaccurate. So, <laughs> um, But like I said, I didn't actually finish it in time because it was so much, so a lot, like it was a lot to get through. I've read summaries of it and I'm still like, okay, so the general plot is quite <laughs> like, it's so weird, it's so like, it's a straight line basically like stuff's happening obviously and things that yeah it's just so much of it feels very like rambling but also somehow not mm. at all in the tone like when you look back at it you know what I mean I don't know if that that's my memory of it <laughs> like yeah. the way the story kind of unfolds you're like okay but there's no yeah it took it so that when I was listening to it I was genuinely worried that I wasn't going to get into the story at all and the first like <laughs> three or four chapters were really like I read the first three or four chapters on the page and then I was like, I think I need this as an audiobook to kind of just like listen to in the background. But even then, like I could just zone out and then come back in and be like, oh, they're still talking about the same thing. Like, <laughs> but like I'll get, I'll read the first sentence to give you an example. Um, mm. In that pleasant district of Merry England, which is watered by riv- the River Don, there extended in ancient times a large forest covering greater part the greater part of the beautiful hills and valleys which lie between Sheffield and the pleasant town of Doncaster. And that's pretty pretty much what it all reads like. The next sentence mm-hmm. goes for the rest of the paragraphs. So. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Walter Scott, what are you doing? <laughs> I mean, it's very 19th century. I mean, it's very 19th century. It's very 19th century male author as well. Mm. Yeah, just describing everything that's happening. We can't miss a detail. We've got to describe everything that's happening. And I felt like mm. at some points because of that, it read like historical nonfiction uh, rather than historical fiction, even though we know that it is fictional. Um, and I definitely think that's got something to do with the way that, like, the time that it was written. And in talking about that, I just also wanted to say it's very important for the context of the novel to understand that it it's probably more to, in the romantic genre. And I'm not saying that in terms of it being a romance novel. I'm saying it in terms of the early 19th century literary movement that's romantic. And I think... Um, I haven't, as I said, I haven't read any of Scott's other works, but that context is really important for understanding what, how, where he was working and what he was working with. So he was really involved in literary salons of the time, particularly in Edinburgh, where he was from, with his friends with familiar names like Lord Byron and Wordsworth and Shelley. Uh, so their goal, particularly Wordsworth's goal, was to present this very romanticised version of England, which a lot of people have talked about in terms of like that rising industrialization, changing of the country, sort of like um, the landscape of the country as well, um, changing from like rolling pastures to grey and dirty, like that kind of thing. So very much emphasising those rolling pastures. <laughs> um, so this novel fits within that and it's sort of separate from his works about Scotland um, as Scott's is this is the only novel that kind of deals with England and English history and I think even though today we can see the formulations of the historical fiction as a genre in this novel simply because it's been set you know in a historical past it's definitely romanticism there is an aspect of playing into 
and evoking a genre that already exists to glorify a past that exists that is is alien and not familiar to people who would be reading it at the time but is something that they probably wish to aspire to or there is that golden age aspect to it and like that's something that we've talked about before with like medievalism and obviously medievalism wasn't a term used in the 19th century but yeah I think the goal of that novel was to kind of tap into that oh medieval period is very interesting and it was a different time and you know that kind of thing um which I think is a misfire for someone who's reading it in a contemporary setting because there's just nothing happening (laughs) (laughs) so yeah trying to evoke the past and the literary forms of the past to tell a story about the past but not very successfully I don't think um but yeah but also having said that Walter Scott's obviously quite well known in the sort of historical fiction genre there's the historical fiction prize is named after him Mm. Walter Scott (laughs) which I have to say women have dominated this this time around uh and Australian women authors have dominated this time around so nice work um (laughs) but it'd be interesting to sort of as a little side note, talk about the authors of your book, Tess and uh, Lachlan, because I hadn't heard of these two books beforehand and and you guys sort of like had obviously picked up on it somehow. You do American history, Lockie, and I don't mm. quite know how you'd heard about yours, Tess, but whatever. Um, <laughs> did you find anything interesting about Google. these authors in your research? Because, I mean, you've talked a little bit about that in terms of the context, but is there anything that kind of surprised you about them at all? Because, I mean, in my perspective, Walter Scott is very much a typical sat in a literary salon, wrote a lot of work, was very interested in history was very like typical of his age you know um but I don't know anything about the authors of your work so yeah is there anything yeah. you guys want to add about that well I did want to talk about um kind of the gendered aspects of yes. the novel which um yeah is very like deeply involved with who Sedgwick was um and she was like she is definitely like unknown now in Australia I think like she might be at the point now where she's being studied in schools in America again, maybe, but she was very highly regarded um, at the time. And it's only recently that she's kind of fallen out of people's knowledge. Yeah. If, if one of the aims of the novel is to kind of criticize this uh, depiction of native Americans, the other is to kind of like early feminism and to encourage a greater role of women in society. So hope Leslie is in the novel kind of this, perfect ideal of this like independent spirit and womanhood um, and it's important in the novel that she wasn't raised amongst puritans she's like the adoptive daughter of um the fletcher family um it's a long story but basically it's <laughs> someone who <laughs> william fletcher was due to marry when he was still in england before he moved over to uh new england uh and their marriage broke up because he was a puritan she wasn't so he went over to new england Eventually, she tries to follow him with her now children from a different marriage, but dies on the journey. Um, and her children are Hope and Faith Leslie. And that's how Hope Leslie comes to be living with the Fletcher family. Yeah. Um, but she's very clear on like, Hope is not uh, puritanical in nature. She mentions her being above the prejudices of her times. She's very much this kind of ideal of a, I think, 
what Sedgwick sees as a modern woman kind of transplanted back into this time period as a criticism uh, for puritanical values like that wives should be submissive to their husbands. Um, and the reason I mentioned that she wasn't married uh, at the beginning is because the way the novel ends is very interesting from that respect. Uh, yeah, so like the very last paragraph of the novel is talking about a character uh, called Esther Downing, who is part of a love triangle between Hope Leslie, Everell Fletcher and herself, where Hope Leslie and Everell Fletcher are very much in love. Uh, Esther is also in love with Everell, but he does not reciprocate. And at the end of the novel, she decides to go back to England to allow um, Hope and Everell to live happily ever, ever after in New England and not sort of disrupt their happiness. Uh, and at the very end, Sedgwick goes back to what Esther ended up doing, which is eventually she comes back to New England uh, and has a very good life there and a very well-respected life. And the final words of the novel are, she illustrated a truth which, if more generally received by her sex, might save a vast deal of misery, that marriage is not essential to the contentment, the dignity or the happiness of woman. Um, and so I just thought it was really interesting that she decided to end it on that particular point, which was probably of like great meaning to her as someone who never married. And that that was another point of this novel was like that women should be, have their independence and not necessarily need to end up in marriage to have a position within society. That's interesting. Yeah, that's, that's so fantastic. Yeah. That's definitely also something that Edgeworth, like, mm. so this is this is the only one of her books that isn't really about gender, <laughs> um, right. like explicitly, like all of the others. This is her first, like, novel, but before this she'd also written um, other things, like essays and a kind of few other things. A lot of it was about, like, education and um, the, so one which is called, so there's an essay from, um, 1795 so like only five years before like she would have been writing Castle Rock right already but um, that's called an essay on the noble science of self-justification and it's like aimed at women um, and it was in a publication called Letters for Literary Ladies which she wrote like a series of essays um, and the essay is basically like women uh, you, you should use your gifts to challenge men because you have a natural gift for self-justification and so you should challenge powerful men especially your husbands uh, use your wit and your knowledge and like blah blah like is sort of this so it's also very like satirical and kind of humorous like that sort of thing through a lot of these different texts uh, but it was very like it's all it's all very like women do it for yourself um, which is interesting to then, I mean, this Castle Rackrent, I think, like some people have said that she sort of expresses some things about gender through the fact that she uses this, like, um, this character of the Stuart whose, like, position in society is um, kind of similar to women's position it, it like it's kind of oppressed in a similar way um but like that's really it like she talks about a lot of the women of the family and she kind of makes comments about the way that these women were treated um and the like types of power or not power that they had but it's not like it's not it's not about gender it's not a novel that really makes any kind of explicit I think argument about women whereas all the other ones that come later like there's one that's published only a year later called Belinda which is about um, like it's all about kind of love and there were like sections about interracial marriage which were removed from oh. some publications as well because it was a, an African servant and like an English girl 
Um, wow. Yeah. So, and it's like some editions have had those bits taken out, I think. Um, I don't know enough about that. Um, but that's only just later. And then over the next like 20, 30 years, she writes a bunch more books that are about, um, that are all about like female kind of characters and they're focused on like the life of women more so. Um, and like one's about, which I find really interesting because this book's actually a little bit, I mean, of its time, but like one of the women that um, is in it is Jewish, um, who he, like, he describes her as the Jew and like, she's kind of all right for a Jew. It's the vibe. Like, it's pretty, mm. yeah, it's very obviously kind of anti-Semitic about a bunch of those things. Um, and there's like other reasons that he doesn't like her. That's the one, pretty sure that's the one that gets locked up um, for like 20 years. Um, but then one of her later books so she had she had she then received complaints which were like public letters about her depiction of uh jewish characters in her books um from a jewish woman and then she wrote a book specifically that's um about overcoming anti-semitism um in about 15 years later that's like literally it's like an apology for the way she depicted jewish women before this i mean it's jewish people but it's like in this one at least it's a it's a woman <laughs> um and so that yeah I think that's really interesting that yeah. it's not just it's not just because it's also in one of her other books um that she specifically is called out for but I think it was really obvious in this one as well and so it's interesting to see that I found that really interesting because I think a lot of the earlier movements of kind of feminism we're not calling that feminism at that point but like you know these kind of four women movements were real kind of racist or yeah. anti-Semitic or other kind of like they had all these other problems that were very much for like white women uh, of a particular class you know and so to see that kind of active apologizing and active kind of attempted inclusion and like going back on the mistakes that she made I think yeah it's interesting it's one of the first it's also another first it's mentioned mm-hmm. as like a first like sympathetic kind of Jewish character in an English novel, the one that she then goes on to write. I don't know if that's true. Again, these are all very like, oh, it's the first time, but then. Mm-hmm. But, but yeah. yeah, a very prominent early example, at least. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. so I find that, I find, yeah, I think it's interesting that her feminism, as it were, like her her obvious drive throughout all of her work to like care about women and write about women isn't, is also in, in other ways like intersectional and this one is about class like this one isn't really isn't really about women at all but it kind of um like I said that's why I think it kind of challenges that um stereotype that all that's like all these women writing at that time were writing about middle-class white women having romance and like that's just not like she's a really interesting kind of example of not that <laughs> um yeah that is really fascinating I have to say yeah. uh, sort of on the back of that as well, something mm. that really struck me with uh, Ivanhoe was the way that Scott is writing about Jewish people within the novel as well. Yeah. Um, it's quite like, like you were saying, like they, you know, mentioned in, in terms of the Jew and like mm. the, there's female characters in it and they're all called Jewess. Um, True. Yeah. I and the, that. yeah, they're very, it's all very sort of like, uh, the word, the, the, I don't know the word that I'm looking for, but like everyone's categorized in their own little like way. Um, mm. You know, there's like this person's a Norman and this person's an Anglo-Saxon. And there's a lot of like discussion about the languages that people are using in terms of like, you know, we can't talk French here. We have to talk blah, blah, blah. 
um, which I found quite hard to sort of grapple with. But the Jewish stuff was really hard to sort of see uh, in terms of like how deeply rooted that anti-Semitism mm. is in that sort of like even just a novel that they're just depicting um, uh, yeah, something that's just been a fictional event, you know. Um, so that's really fascinating to me that sort of Edgeworth would like retroactively kind of mm. apologise. It's not that. that, like, it's not that long later. I was just yeah. trying to check. Like, it came out in um, uh, 1817. It's like, it's it's not that long later that she's doing that as well. Um, yeah. So it was a response to a letter by Rachel Mordecai is the um, American Jewish woman. I feel like we should say her name as well. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> I don't know anything yeah. about her. She's a, an editor. I'm on her Wikipedia page and it just says that she didn't like Lord Byron, so. <laughs> <laughs> Who? Um, Edgeworth. Maria Edgeworth. Oh, Maria, I, missed, I didn't see Maria, that. <laughs> Maria met Lord Byron, whom she disliked. <laughs> <laughs> but she had correspondence with Walter Scott too. Didn't yeah, she? I was just like reading she, that. Yeah. yeah. So she entered mm. into a long correspondence with Ultra Tory. Uh so Walter Scott. Lol. Scott, that makes a lot of sense if he's an ultra Tory. It does. It does. <laughs> <laughs> Not just a Tory, an ultra Tory. Ultra Tory. <laughs> yeah, that's so funny. Uh yeah, they had to a, know, this is Wikipedia. <laughs> yeah, this is Wikipedia, but I don't know. He definitely was a Tory. Anyway. I think he was in <laughs> He might have been in Parliament as uh, a Tory as well, maybe. I think I read that somewhere. But anyway, huh, that was interesting. It's interesting to see differences. I'd be interested to see if Mir- Maria Edgeworth has got like a biography or something that's been written about her. She does. It's from okay. the 80s. Um, and that's where a bunch of that stuff like comes from. I haven't actually been able to get my hands on it. I've read like other people's oh, there's a, about it online. But um, there was one. Sorry, there's a 2006 collection, New Essays on Maria Edgeworth. Cool. I was going to say, there's definitely, like, that's the that's the first, I think, big one that was um, Elizabeth Harden in 1984. Uh, but then there's been a lot of, I was going to say, there's a lot of, like, articles and things um, since then. Definitely feel like she'd be a popular figure to write a, like, um, interesting biography about because mm. there's also there's like we have a lot of letters like there's a lot of um evidence of like her communication with different members of her family because like I said her family was wealthy yeah. um so there's like correspondence between various members of their family I don't know how much of the letters themselves right but there's like um, accounts of that um about like talking about what was going on in like specifically around that kind of political turbulence in the 1790s um and like saying like her kind of perspective on that like writing to like cousins or aunts I can't remember um but yeah there's various information about that that I think has helped like paint the picture of what was going on and her perspective love an 18th century women women's author author (laughs) yeah there's a lot of journals from uh, Walter Scott, but I did not read those. <laughs> no, that, that's fair. Especially uh, knowing that he's an ultra Tory. So. <laughs> Before we wrap up, one thing I wanted to ask, because um, I was thinking about it with this book, is like what counts as historical fiction? So yours are a bit more simple. Yours are like at least 200 years, right? But she's mm. writing like eight years after. And this is lucky, and I kind of mentioned this in the corridor the other day at work. But like what 
what counts as historical fiction? So if I was to write a book now set like 20 years ago, like in the 80s, 90s, God test. Um, 2000s almost. 2000s almost, <laughs> right? And time when I'm alive, like I'm alive in the 90s. So I'm writing about something I technically lived through as a baby, but like, you know. So d- could that be historical fiction? Because this is called historical fiction, right? Even though she literally started writing it eight years later because it's set in a period that she is saying, or at least they're saying is like markedly different to the period it's being released in. It's being described as as like different historical era because things have dramatically changed in society. So can it count as historical fiction? Can you decide something is a historical period only eight to 12 years later? So technically speaking, according Mm -hmm. to the Historical Novel Society of Australia, (laughs) it has to be set 50 years in the past to to qualify Mm. as historical fiction. However, Mm. I dispute that, I think. That's quite arbitrary. Yeah. Yeah. I feel. It means that we can only say that novels that are set what's 50 years ago now, the 70s, novels that are set in the 70s or 60s and 70s are historical fiction and the rest isn't, which isn't true, I don't think. I feel like it's, yeah, to put a number on it is stupid. (laughs) Sorry, historical fiction society. Yeah, I agree. I feel like it needs to be more about the way that, I guess, like, book is written. Like, if you're writing, Mm. if you're writing and you have to do some form of like historical archival research. Like, like if you need to read something written by people who are alive then that you couldn't know without reading their perspective, like something like that, I feel like needs to, is more the way that I would think about it, you know? Yeah, or even just if the time you're writing about, if there's like a sense of cultural distance from it. How do you define that? though? That's yeah, so well, tricky. that's the thing. It's a vague term, yeah. but like... You know, I, if I were to write something about the 80s, like I don't feel like I, there's any sort of, obviously there's continuity like with the 80s, but I don't feel like mm. I can understand what it was like to be alive during the 80s. So that feels yeah. like it would be historical fiction for me, even yeah. though it's within 50 years from now, I think, if my math is correct. <laughs> if someone was to write a book now about, for example, I'm trying to think of big political things, right, about, like say 9-11 kind of 2001 period of time mm. would that be historical fiction yes. 20 years nearly yes yeah, what yeah. Do you think? i don't know that it would feel like it to me it probably yeah. wouldn't feel like it but it no. would be to someone who like you know that's true a, yeah i so i was going to mention somebody in my um survey uh, mm. said that I dispute your classification of the 1950s as historical fiction because I was alive then, mm-hmm. which I, I thought was very interesting because yeah. obviously to me reading something that's set in the 1950s is for sure historical fiction because it's mm. a historical period, um, which I feel, so, I feel bad for them, but <laughs> like, I don't want to be like, yeah. you know, shut down their opinion, but. Yeah, like I don't I know. I think arbitrary. it's I think it's interesting, yeah. like thinking about things like I mean, it's it's a sin, and like we were talking about Shuggy Bane that's set in the eighties, mm. um, The Crown that's also set in the eighties. It's not it's not contemporary. Yeah, I don't know. Nine Eleven is a bit of a hard one, I guess. But for someone who was born 
post 9-11 as reading yeah. the novel set then, then they'd probably be like, whoa. Yeah. I was saying you were born post 9-11. I was like, Hillary, I don't <laughs> think that's true. <laughs> are you 18? <laughs> yeah, there are people I wish I was. Now. Yeah, right? <laughs> um, but yeah, like they'd be like, oh my God, mobile phones were the size of a shoe. Like what, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. Um, you used to flip them? What the hell? You used to flip them? Uh, they didn't have colour? <laughs> cameras were horrible. <laughs> they didn't even have cameras. Didn't even have cameras. I was like, ah, I mean, <laughs> nope, my first phone didn't have a camera. Um, but yeah, I guess, what is it? Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. So maybe the historical fiction is in the eye of the, of the reader. Mm, in the age of heart. the reader. In the age of the reader. <laughs> Um, I guess that's, yeah, it's about which kind of periods you connect with as being something that are part of your own experience of the world and which things you connect as being, like, you think of as being. Yeah. So I think it could be quite arbitrary. Yeah. And then something like this, like, she obviously connects with that history. She understands that from her own personal experience, right, Marie Edgeworth. But Mm. it is only through the use of that sense of historicity that she's able to write this critique she does. Like, that's the whole purpose of the tone of the novel. So yeah. even though she's got that connection, she's creating a kind of historicity. So then I feel like it still kind of becomes historical fiction through that deliberate mm. historicizing sense. I don't mm. know. Just that was an interesting thing to, to raise for the end of our discussion. No, I think it's a good question. Yeah, it it's is. very and I think it's interesting because I think we're seeing a lot of um things that are being published in that are set in the 70s and 80s and even the 90s at the moment that are kind of like being touted as historical fiction. Um, so there's obviously that conversation that's been happening, that, that that is happening within the sort of like public about about like what is mm. historical fiction and what can we, what times do we consider mm. historical? And I mean, I would consider something set in the 80s historical despite the fact that it was, you know, during my parents' lifetime. Yeah. I also, yeah, I also just wanted to say, I was just thinking while we were talking too, that, I mean, obviously this is a very kind of Western cultural conceptualization mm. of like fiction and all these sorts of things too. So like, you know, when we try and say something like, what's the first historical novel? Like, you know, do we count something like, if we're talking about his writing about a period of history, it depends how mm. we define historical novel, but like, what about, you know, sagas or like yeah. Yeah. dreamtime stories that yeah. are eventually being written? You know, and obviously these these things that were oral traditions, but at some point recorded. Like, mm. at what point mm. do we think of any story about the past as being some kind of historical fiction? I guess I don't know. Some of those weren't fiction, fiction, but um, mm. yeah, I don't know. I think it throws up also an interesting like cultural dimension to how we think about novels and character and classifications, not characterization, yeah. classifications of different types of genres and stuff as well kind of inherent like western bias to the way that oh for sure yeah which we obviously know but yeah yeah we noted about especially (laughs) about Walter Scott like (laughs) yeah yeah the best historical novelist and technically speaking like Shakespeare is writing historical fiction yeah right and before that plenty of people are writing historical fiction before that um and like people writing at the end of the middle ages or writing about like you know something like Lamont D'Arthur right is written in the 1500s and it's set hundreds of years before so is that not historical fiction too like 1400s is he 15th century is what i was starting to say yeah 
That's you would fine. think as someone who studies history, I'd be good at that. Nah. Uh, just <laughs> this whole time, I've just been saying 18, like saying the exact date so that I couldn't say 18th or 19th century wrong. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. I also was going to say that, like, when I mentioned my PhD topic and say that I'm doing, like, oh, how, you know, historical fiction informs perceptions of history, mm-hmm. people immediately think that I'm talking about Jane Austen. Or like someone mentioned Jane Eyre to me the other day, and I'm like, that's not yeah. historical fiction. It's not historical no. fiction. They're writing it in the time Contemporary. they live. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's like histori- but they're historical books to us now. Historical people. Yeah, historical books, but <laughs> yeah. they're not historical fiction. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, so I thought I think that that's interesting. Like people, what people classify as historical and fiction separately, <laughs> and mm. whole other mm. other conversation. But yeah, yeah, interesting. I do think it's really interesting as well that rack rent is like a direct critique of the times it's sort of hidden in historical fiction which is something that continues like it makes me think of the crucible or yep. something like that yeah yeah that makes it's me really think of like that starts really early war mm. of the worlds as well like that was a very mm. like critical of the contemporary i mean it's obviously not historical fiction it's more sci-fi but <laughs> you know that's but still yeah. like using this kind of ultimate setting as a way to, i mean that's that's what medievalism is usually but like using mm-hmm. any any setting that isn't um exactly your kind of contemporary world in order to present a critique about your life or something in mm. your context is like very common obviously but i think yeah this one does it in a way that's very sort of explicit um mm. but i think what you were talking about as well with that story about um the kind of massacre and that it but it's mm. using it's doing the same thing in a sense it's kind of using that idea of it being a historical context because that's obviously a commentary on things that were still happening yeah yeah so it's the same yeah thing in a set in a way yeah <laughs> so to wrap it all up would you guys recommend the books that you've read to people yes I think yeah. so. I think you have to like, it's very different than reading something written now. Mm. So you have to go into it with the, like the mindset of the, the voice that it's written in. Like, I think I had to really kind of get into this character of Thaddy and like picture Thaddy Quirk and pick, that's his name. And like kind of read it almost like in his voice or I got very sort of lost amongst how it was written and you want to kind of skim read almost. So you have to kind of force yourself to read it in the way it's written and in the voice that it's supposed to be kind of this fun character. Um, and then I enjoyed it. So I think if you get in the right mindset, I definitely mm. think read it, but also read about that context because it's a really interesting example and it's not that long. Yeah. <laughs> I don't mean, Hillary? <laughs> no. Hillary? No. <laughs> no. I just think like. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Ivan Ho, more like Ivan No. Uh, yeah, I I appreciated the experience to actually pick it up and have a go at reading it, I think. Um, but I don't think it's going to, like, I do agree with what Tess said that you need to kind of like get yourself into the mindset of what it would be like reading it in the sort of mind frame that was supposed to be read. But there's only so far that you can go with that before you yeah. just kind of like, feel like you're wading through mud to get to any kind of like decent content so I think if you're interested in medievalism you're interested in early historical fiction I think give it a go but I think these other two books sound much more interesting to be honest (laughs) yeah I mean I don't know if I'd reckon in on mine like I really enjoyed it but it's very much in 
kind of early 19th century sentimental mode where everyone's sort of weeping all the time (laughs) (laughs) and it can be a bit like overbearing to read Mm -hmm. um so I think if you're yeah if you're interested in the time period um that she was writing in uh, I think it's a really it offers a really interesting perspective an example of that sort of literature I don't know if I'd recommend it for everyday reading Mm. yeah Mm because I was talking to um to someone else about this and like reading books from the time period you study and how it's kind of inherently enjoyable because you're even if it's trash yeah I <laughs> and hopefully think, isn't trash but it's just yeah yeah I also just think really it's really important like if you're mm. a historian and you can access material like popular material from the time um like novels like poems like whatever like I mean obviously now the historical discipline is way better at that but I feel like not that long ago historians are really dismissive of using popular culture as historical yeah. evidence yeah. so like actually it, it it I mean I'm sure we'd all be advocates for this but you know like that's something that's still in some ways um not as mainstream in terms of historical method and so it should be mm-hmm. like it gives you such a good sense of the um of what was going on at the time of different mm. kind of perspectives and like yeah it's really interesting to, to well, for be that able to do. social cultural context in history it's very mm. important yeah yeah okay well to wrap things up um thank you both for that discussion it was really good very thank interesting you. things that are coming through I really want to read a little bit more about Maria Edgeworth to be honest and I think you both sort of put me on a path that includes some stuff into my thesis as well, which is really exciting. You're welcome. <laughs> Tell us what you find out about. I want to know more. Yeah. Read some of those biographies texts about him. Yeah, I will. <laughs> I will report back. So we have decided that we will be going on a bit of a hiatus simply because we have life, de- life, <laughs> life, yeah. yes. life's a lot at the moment. <laughs> life is a lot at the moment. Mm-hmm. We are all in crunchy parts of our theses and other life things are going on. So we are, despite the fact that we were very excited about coming back and working with this different sort of structure, uh, we will <laughs> put that on hold for the moment mm-hmm. and We'll try and remain as active as possible in our, on our Instagram, just posting if we ever read any good historical fictions and keep in touch with everybody. Uh, we really appreciate all the support that we have gotten so far and we really will try our hardest to come back after we have got through a very sticky part of the year. <laughs> so uh, thank you so much. Don't forget if you want to keep up to date with any sort of information that we have for you to look for us on uh, Facebook and on Instagram. And if you do have any feedback for, for us in the meantime, just send an email through to historicalfrictionspod at gmail.com. We look forward to you joining us next time when we hopefully come back from our hiatus. Until then, have the best time reading whatever books that you read and we'll (laughs) we'll see you then. Bye. Bye!